Well, it's that time. So, uh, we're going to do something just a little different tonight. We are going to pray um, and then review just a little bit and then read the chapter. Okay. So, uh, who wants to pray? Let me, let me beat everybody. It's quick, though, It's just not as quick. Come on, Mr. Lamb. So, mighty God, we thank you, God, for bringing us here to receive your word, God, for filling us with your spirit, Father. We ask that you speak to our hearts, God, that you circumcise our hearts, Father, that you cut away everything that doesn't belong, Father, leave your precious Holy Spirit. God, would you press through all distractions and speak to our hearts, Father, and show us how we are to apply this word, Father. How we are to apply this word to the enemy's face, God. Father, we thank you. We love you and we praise your holy name. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Man, I love the contrasts that are going on in our life. On Sundays, we preach on warfare and on Monday night about the love of God. Amen. Uh, that's because we're lion killers. But we're also tender fathers and loving husbands. Amen. So when we set out on this uh, this study, yeah, we're recording. I titled it "Romantic Redemption." Up to this point, uh, you know that title may strain credulity. We've been um, commenting on historical settings, like the time period of the judges. We have proposed authorship as Samuel. We looked at the severity of the famine, the tribal allotments, the etymology of names, the catechism of the Hebrew calendar, the frequency of sacred assemblies, the agricultural calendar, laws of gleaning, the laws of Leverite marriage. You might have said that the Bible study is decisively unromantic. Tonight that begins to change. In our generational setting, where we have things that are like Snapchat and Christian Mingle and other such carnalities, romance is rushed. It's cheapened. Uh, Hurrying to get to the point misses something. So I know you guys will join me when I say tonight we're going to slow cook something. Something that's worth enjoying. Far from cheap and ultimately unsatisfying, you should note that God has been thoughtful, escalating, enduring, and this will be markedly fulfilling. That is a much more mature view of romance than what you can get and how fast you can get it. So let's let's put something on the board tonight, and we will start here. If you're taking notes, no, doesn't work. If it's disconnected, we will reconnect it because it's important. Yes. I'm reconnecting. It's upside down. All right. Tonight, as we get into romantic redemption. One of the first things that we covered, we called the first chapter, Clinging Resolve. And uh, in chapter one, we saw Ruth rise out of tragedy. She proved her faithfulness beyond words. 
She had companions that promised, but delivered poorly. Ruth both promised and performed what she <coughs> promised. In chapter 1, you can say, instead of clinging resolve, we saw love's resolve. Because love does what it says it's going to do. Amen? Amen. Not very loving to have kind words and not do it like Orpah. But it's very loving to be short on words and long on actions. Ruth did exactly what she said she was going to do. And tonight you find out she did a whole lot more than she ever said she was going to do. When we got to the second chapter, I called it Gleaning's Response. In this chapter... Ruth experienced Mikre, that chance happening upon something that's divinely orchestrated. While she was growing in faithfulness, she encountered the hero of our story. Uh, you could say that he was arguably seduced by her faithful devotion to others, since that's what he mentioned. Our hero, Boaz, initiates gifts of provision and security towards our beloved Moabite mistress. In chapter 2, we called it gleaning response, but you could have called it love's response. Love has a resolve, and love has a response. When Ruth saw Naomi, she loved her, and that caused a response. When you love someone, you react to them a certain way. Isn't that fair? In this book, we see that, says the single man. That's true. It's all right. He's only single a little while longer. Tonight, in our title, Threshing Request, we have a few problems that have to be uh, addressed. As we've studied the things that we've studied, you begin to ask, how can Naomi maintain the name of Elimelech since his sons are now dead. Uh, that was the purpose of Leverite marriage. We first encountered it in Joshua with the Zeholophad of Namali, which is a little different than Leverite marriage, but in that case, we had daughters that had no male heirs anywhere, and Moses, and then later Joshua affirmed, had to uh, go before the Lord and decide, what do we do? Property has to stay in the family. And it was decided that they needed to marry within their clan. If they married within their clan, then at least the property stayed within their clan. Uh, when we looked at Leverite marriage, we found something a little different. It was marrying your husband's, dead husband's brother so that his name would carry on, so that your property would stay in the family clan, and so that your lineage and you would be taken care of. Well, Naomi has to figure out how to maintain the inheritance that was meant to stay in her family line. Her husband, Elimelech's dead. Her son, Kilion, and her son, Malhan, are dead. And she is alone with a Moabitess. So she has no family line to carry on. She has no way to transfer the property. More than that, she loves Ruth. So she has to figure out what's best by Ruth. You know, when somebody's concerned only with themselves, it shows up in their actions. Tonight, we see Naomi taking actions that are for Ruth's best interest. In the first chapter, we saw Ruth taking actions that were for Naomi's best interest. Arguably, the second chapter, you could say Ruth was also taking 
actions that were for Naomi's best interest. She was out gleaning in fields and bringing home food. Tonight, while I called it threshing request originally, you could call it love's request. So the idea here being that love has a certain resolve to it, it clings. Love has a certain response, actions that accompany that clinging. Love has a certain request that it makes. I'm going to argue tonight that anybody that ever truly fell in love was rescued in some form or fashion. There was something about the action that was redeeming and rescuing. And by the way, our fourth chapter that I called Redeeming Reward, you'll have to wait till we get to, but I think we could call it Love's Reward. So in four chapters of Ruth, uh, we have love's resolve, love's response, love's request, and love's reward. As we go towards that tonight, we're going to read a few things from chapter 2, just so that we can remind you of where we're at in the story and what's happening, because the chapter's short, and I, I, I want you to get it. I want you to get it with the kind of richness and fullness that God intended you to see in it. So who will read for me the first verse of chapter Steve? Read Ruth 2, 1. Ruth 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of, from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. You know, this is an interesting thing. I'm going to show you two Hebrew words here that... Uh, we did not define in the previous week. When the hero is introduced to the story, this reads kind of like a medieval uh, tale. A man of standing in the Hebrew language is a giver ha'il. Uh, if Peyton was here tonight, he wrote a whole song based on giver ha'il in Turkey, and we sing it in the car while we're joking coming up to roadblocks that we think we're going to be shot at. But giver means brave strong or mighty. Really, you could argue all three of those words have a pretty similar meaning. Strong and mighty. Brave and strong. There's a relationship. Ha'il is a masculine noun meaning strength, wealth, or army. But the word carries the idea with it, a man of great influence. Well, somebody read 1 Kings 7.21. He erected the pillars at the portico of the temple. The pillars to the south he named Jachin, and the ones to the north, Boaz. Look at your footnote, Frank. What is your footnote for Boaz, say? Anybody see a footnote in your margin? In him is strength. It's an unusual footnote. That is not a translator's footnote. That's not a footnote that says you could translate Boaz as strength. This is a manuscript footnote. In many of the manuscripts next to Boaz, they write in him as strength. Wow. The idea there being they want you to know why they chose the name Boaz for a, temp, uh, for a, a pillar in the temple of our God. Amen. Something about Boaz's life conveyed strength. And so... Uh, a temple pillar. 
gets named after him. Now, let's put some of this together from the first verse. A man from the clan of Elimelech, which means my God is king, right? A man from the clan of my God is king, who is a giver hail, a brave, strong, mighty, and influential man. Did I mention strong? Well, his name is Boaz, which also means in him is strength. Could we find any other word to describe Boaz other than strong at this point? Now, you could think we were talking about Shimshon or Samson, a man of a great physique. Does anybody know what Boaz looks like? We're describing a strength of character that endears you to love the man because a physique fades. But character grows, right? Uh, Anybody who's ever read the last verse of Proverbs 31 uh, ought to know this. Uh, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, right? When we look at this, this concept tonight, it's important that you think of Boaz in the light of a young Hebrew reading it. Everything about his name, everything about the introduction is implying that he's a very influential, strong man of great character. Fair enough? Okay. Uh, Who's going to read now? Joyce, take Ruth 2 and read 5 through 7. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? (laughs) The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So at this point in our romantic, redemptive story, we have a hero named Boaz who is introduced to Ruth, whose name means, uh, you say he's just a friend. (laughs) That was Bismarcky for you that don't know that Ruth means friend or friendship. We have Boaz who meets a friend. And what's the name of the person who introduced him? They're nameless. It's just the foreman of the harvest. So our story is starting to build. Ruth catches the eye of the foreman because she's working steadily. You know, if you work hard, you tend to stand out in group because most don't. Thirdly, in this particular passage... If we have a foreman of the harvest speaking to the guy who owns the fields, what we really have is the Lord of the harvest speaking to the foreman of the harvest about a prospective bride. That's beautiful, isn't it? And who is the Lord of the harvest? The one in him is strength. Okay? So, after offering both protection and provision, Boaz explains the reason for his interest in Ruth. We already know something about the character of Boaz just based on his name, based on the descriptors that were used. But Boaz is now learning about Ruth. What first caught his eye? Whose young Moabitess is that? It had to be that she was good looking to him because he doesn't know what she's done. But what caught uh, the foreman's eye was her work behavior. And while initial attraction may have been through sight, Watch what draws him in. This is Ruth 2, 11 through 12. Who's going to read it? Me. Daniel. 
2.11-12, Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Can I tell you as a husband? You ask nothing more of your wife. I mean, there's nothing harder that you ask your wife to do than to just be kind to your mother-in-law. <laughs> Her mother-in-law, your mother, rather. Something about the way that Ruth cared for her mother-in-law caught his eye. We're going to read some more of that in just a second, but why is it special? It, if you do something for your mother, you came from her body. She's your blood relation. But to do something for your mother-in-law means that you care more. You care uh, beyond just blood relation, right? Now, if your husband is dead and you still care for the mother-in-law, that speaks of an even greater character, right? Can I tell you, when I'm dead and gone, I don't ever expect my, sister, my, my wife to talk to, uh, to her mother-in-law, ever? I mean, it, I, I would, <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I would leave that alone. Uh, let, let's keep going in 11. Help me here. <laughs> How you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This means that what Boaz is attracted to, what the Lord of the harvest, who is strong and influential and brave and mighty, sees in the young Moabitess may have started with just a glance... Wow, she's attractive. But the more that he learned about her, he found out she was also a steady worker. He found out she had been faithful to her husband. She had been faithful to her mother-in-law. And she had come to take refuge in the wings of the God of Israel. Did we bring the Kali? No. Come to take refuge in the wings of the God of Israel. Think about what this says. Faithful to a dead husband. You're going to find out she's still faithful to him in this chapter. You find out after he's gone, she still takes steps to protect his memory and his legacy. She doesn't have to. There can be no earthly reward for that. She's taking care of her mother-in-law. She doesn't have to. There is no temporal reward for that. She's come to take refuge in the wings of the God of Israel, and she's a Moabitess. It's not like she was born into it. Others were Jewish by birth. She's become Jewish by choice. All of this is speaking a message of the character of Ruth. We start off with the assumption that the Lord of the harvest is great. But we have to learn that Ruth's character is great. Are you following me so far? Okay, let's take, uh, let's take a little hint here. Y'all know the word ramaz in Hebrew? Yes. When we get into Acts class, you'll learn a lot more about ramaz. There is a remez early on in this story, and it comes in Ruth 2.13 and uh, 14. So who will read that? Go ahead, Chris. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. We're going to more fully develop this in chapter 4. But if you were watching this as a movie, where you could see the way that their eyes were interacting, the way that their body language was happening, if you could just even hear a recording so that you knew where the inflections 
were in their voice. You could say that the imagery is very innocent. I would say there's a suggestion of flirtation here. You know, that's always in the eye of the beholder. I'm certain that the first time my wife met me, she was flirting with me. She (laughs) says that's not true. God will tell us one day. (laughs) Ruth intimates that Boaz's kindness is greater than her status deserves. Unless maybe she had in mind a different status. So, why would you show such kindness to me, your servant? Unless she thought he was looking at her in a little different way than a man looks at a casual employee. What if there was kind of a question here? Yeah, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? Moving forward in our story, we saw that Boaz initiated again. He didn't just start a conversation. What's he doing now? Hey, why don't you come dip your hand here in this cup? In Middle Eastern tradition that carries all the way through the time of Jesus, to share that particular dish with someone was the greatest honor at the table. This is why Jesus countered to the head when the enemy was planning his demise, Jesus heaped hot coals on the enemy's head by offering Judas to dip his hand in the dish with him. It was an honor. Why is Boaz honoring this young woman? It seems that perhaps there's a calculation already going on inside the Lord of the Harvest. He's already looking. He's already thinking. He's already wondering what God may have in store for him. And maybe she is too. Like, why would you show me such kindness as a humble servant girl? Long pause. (laughs) Right? Cue romantic music. Finally, we left our story last week with Naomi playing the part of a Jewish yenta. She has surveyed the situation and... um, uh, well, let's read how she did it. Who will read Ruth 2, 20 through 23? Caleb. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. <laughs> Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter... Now, wait just a second. Keep your finger there, Caleb. <coughs> Why is it kind to the living and the dead? What does it have to do with anything that Boaz, the lord of the harvest, sees a good-looking young Moabitess who has excellent character, and he begins to initiate kind actions towards her, and she seems all too willing to be the recipient of those actions. What does that have to do with the dead? Well, it could be in Naomi's mind that she's already beginning to wonder. (laughs) You know, maybe she's playing matchmaker. Keep going, Caleb. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. 
I'm going to say that as our plot is beginning to thicken here, Naomi's speech clearly indicates that Boaz may be a solution to the problems we discussed earlier relating to both living people and dead people. She has a problem she can't maintain Elimelech's line. She has a problem she has no male descendants and she's got property that nobody can inherit. She also has a problem in that she loves Ruth very much. And what's going to happen to Ruth if Naomi does? Who's going to take care of her? They're mutually concerned for each other. In other words, they love each other. What is more, she does a very Jewish motherly thing. It's good for you to stay with the servant girls. That's what she said. It's good for you to do that. Like Ruth wouldn't know that by herself. Like, no, this is this is good for you. And then in uh, verse 22, she says, you know, if you leave, you could be harmed. Well, she didn't have any idea whose field she was in that day, and she wasn't worried about her being harmed. But suddenly when she hears it's Boaz's field, she's worried if she leaves, she'll be harmed. Or she's matchmaking just a little bit. Like, yeah, no reason to go to anybody else's field. It's good for you to be there. You don't want to get hurt somewhere else. It's funny how mamas do, huh? Uh, the writer, probably Samuel, notes that Ruth complied. You know, if Ruth didn't want to comply, I bet she wouldn't have. History's been full of people crawling out of their bedroom windows at night to go see somebody they shouldn't see. I suspect she complied because she wanted to comply. That takes us to the third chapter of Ruth, where it is our tradition that Jennifer read the chapter. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you, where you will where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whom servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself, and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. Put on those boots, girl. (laughs) But don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note at the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Watch out for that grape juice. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning if he wants to redeem, good, let him 
redeemed. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured in it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to the, went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. Aside from this being loosely adapted from the way that Jennifer and I met, <laughs> there is a lot that is going on in this passage. I haven't intended to bog us down in the last four and a half hours or five hours of teaching in minutia for no reason. The point was that you would understand some of the cultural background. So I'm going to highlight it as we go, having already been introduced to it. I think you'll snap to it fairly quickly. Let's go back to the first verse and talk some translation issues. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be provided for? We'll get to her questions here late in a minute because Jewish questions uh, almost always suppose an answer before they ask them. Uh, I mean, do you get the do you get the sense that she asked two rhetorical questions in a row for a reason, followed by seven suggestions? Uh, she didn't wait for an answer anywhere in here. <laughs> okay, she's just leading her daughter-in-law down the Yenta Road, and. Um, the first thing to notice is it may have a, a different translation, something that does not say home. Should I not try to find a home? Find rest. Rest and security. Those are, those are pretty normal translations, rest and security. The reason that home is there is because when Westerners translate this Hebrew word, what we think of as rest and security is having a good home. But that is, there's several other Hebrew words for home. Beth, bat would be one. This particular Hebrew word is manoach. And uh, let me show it to you. So manoach, uh, Strong's number 4494, a masculine noun designating rest or a resting place. Israel figuratively found no resting place for the soles of their feet at times in their history. A resting place was, for rest, oddly enough, a place of security. And it specifically is supposed to come as the result of rest for your soul. Not so much physical activity, but a kind of internal tranquility that are the result of the blessings or mercies of God. That is, uh, that is far more in line... What Naomi is actually saying is, you know, um, Ruth, shouldn't I try to help you find the kind of inner peace that comes from being blessed of God? It's very similar to the concept of shalom. As we start to go through this, um, 
There are some things that I would like to show you, though, about Manoach. Uh, Justin, take Deuteronomy 28, verse 65. Spencer, take Lamentations 1-3. In each of these, uh, that will give us a law, a prophet's, uh, a law and a writings. We'll do prophet later. Uh, you're going to see a theme here. It's used far more negatively than it's used positively in the word. Among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing, and a despairing heart. This passage contains the word Manoah, and it's where there is no resting place for the sole of your feet. When it's further described, when the opposite of Manoach is described, it's called an anxious mind, uh, weary eyes, longing and despairing of heart. What does that mean about Ruth? Should I not find for you Manoach? Then she doesn't have it. She is faithful in the midst of internal difficulty. Isn't that how faithfulness is usually found, though? You show that you are trusting when you're under tribulation. You show that you are a person of godly integrity when in the same circumstances others would not. Okay? So we tend to read this as Ruth is just one of those people. You know? She's just, it's easy for her, isn't it? But it's not. Her mother-in-law can see it. She's experienced death. She's experienced uh, the travel from one place to another, the loss of all of her familiar surroundings. She's working like a slave in a field. So she had internal problems going on. They just didn't show up in her external actions. She was faithful. It is a curse of God when you cannot settle internal conflict. When you cannot... Get over the trauma inside. That, that is a sign that God's hand is not with you. This is what has led to the Christian idea of, oh, I was just led by my peace. Well, that can be true and not. Most of the time you're saying I'm led by the path that's easiest, which makes men and rivers crooked. But what it was intended to mean <laughs> is... Something about this decision set well with the inside of my soul. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, let's read Lamentations 1-3. Who had that one? I did. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. When Israel is taken into the Babylonian captivity, or more specifically, the southern kingdom of Judah is taken into the Babylonian captivity, it was said that she could find no Manoach. No matter what they were doing in that situation, Lamentations is about Jeremiah agonizing over the gut-wrenching judgment that has fallen on them, and it is not setting well with him. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. You know, we flirted with the idea that perhaps uh, Naomi was not so much 
just embittered when she came back and said, you know, don't call me Naomi, Naomi, call me Mara, that she was repenting, that she was recognizing that this turmoil that she had in her life was the result of being on the right road but headed the wrong way. How much better would people's lives be if they could realize that they are probably the author of their own confusion? As soon as we take uh, responsibility for that, then we can turn it around. Then you can go to a place where you can find Manoach. It seems to me that somewhere in this story, Naomi is experiencing a transition. She was out of her land and everybody died. She's now back in her land and she's looking for ways that everybody can live and flourish. It's incredible when you're headed the wrong way, everything gets dim. Everything becomes bad. But when you get back to the place that God's called you to be, things start to flourish again. So the first thing that she wants to do is see how she can make that happen for Ruth too. Now the word that is the cognate for Manoach in uh, the LXX, in the uh, Septuagint, this is an interesting word and it's a good one. It's going to help us understand some things. Um, Anaposis. Any Greek experts in here tonight? Good, then I pronounced that perfectly. <laughs> Anaposis is the same word from Ruth, uh, same place in the passage. I lifted it right out of the polyglot. And uh, it means to give rest. And it says inward tranquility while one performs necessary labor. In other words, we're not talking about going to lay down. We're not talking about sleep. How many times have you thought a vacation would fix your problem, and then you came back uh, having prescribed the wrong solution and then still drew the wrong conclusion? Uh, that five-day vacation didn't work. Do you know why? It needed to be longer. Now, if it was longer, it wouldn't have worked either because the problem is inside of you, not with your external circumstances. This is why you can go from job to job, school to school, relationship to relationship, and the same things follow you. You have a Manoah problem, okay? Now, Naomi didn't want Ruth to have one of those. And she saw her acting faithfully, and she wanted to see her do well. And so I wanted to show you an example of how this word carries from the Hebrew Older Testament to the Greek Newer Testament in the prophets, because I covered law and I covered writings in the Older Testament, we'll give you a prophet in the Newer Testament. Uh, who will read Revelation? Curtis, take Revelation 14 and read 9 through 12. There will be no anaposis. There will be no Manoach, not day or night, for those that make the choice to worship the beast. They will never again have tranquility in their soul. They'll never again be at rest. 
Now, we're not talking about the cessation of work. We're talking about your inner state while you are working, right? Uh, maybe my favorite is seeing that Naomi wanted to see the effects of sin and judgment lifted off of Ruth. I mean, after all, it's probably not Ruth's fault, right? She didn't make the decision to leave Israel. She didn't run from the land of provision. She, she didn't propose to Mahlon. She married into a mess. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you married into a mess. <laughs> yeah, we'll let that sit for a little while. It's very likely that every person in here feels like they married into a mess, but something about the spouse was worth it or you wouldn't have done it, huh? She loved Ruth. And uh, she was beginning to devise a plan for Ruth to experience shalom. In this chapter, she starts asking her questions, then she starts making suggestions, and Ruth hadn't said anything. That's because already born in the heart of Naomi, while she's asking these questions, should I not do this? Isn't he this? And she already has a solution in mind. It's a very Jewish thing to ask you questions to lead you down a path, as opposed to just walk up and say, you know what I think you should do? I guess that was a question too. As opposed to walking up and saying, you should. It's because it feels better when it's your uh, own idea, right? I want to show you in Psalm 116, if we could all go there, a use of the word Manoach. The number of times that Psalm 116 has come up in my studies lately is incredible. Um, I love the Lord, for He heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because He turned His ear to me, I will call on Him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Does that sound like Manoah? It sounds like he doesn't have it. There, there, there's no anaposis here. It's somebody experiencing the effects of sin or judgment. Then I called on the name of Yahweh. Oh, Lord, save me. Oh, man. Isn't this the lesson that we all need to learn? Yes. That when you have no Manoah, when you have no anaposis, that the solution to that is not new circumstances. The solution to that is to call on the name of the Lord. Amen. And when we begin to call on the name of the Lord, something happens. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, somebody say great need. Great, great need. need. He saved me. Be at Manoach once more. Be at Anaposis once more. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. There's no indication that anything about the circumstances have changed but something about the inner state has changed. And when that happens, 
You say my boundaries have fallen in pleasant places. You say not one of the Lord's good promises have failed. You say the Lord is faithful and righteous in all that he does. A rock who does nothing wrong. Much of what we've learned this year as a church is how to do that despite our circumstances, yes. isn't it? Yes. <coughs> For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death. Notice that the writer considers a loss of Manoah like death. My eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Where was he before? He was in the land of the living as a dead man. Yeah? But something happened inside of him that changed him. This is what Naomi wants for Ruth. This is what we want for you and you want for your relatives and the people that you love. In fact, he said, I believe, just going to tell you how. I believe, therefore, I said, I am greatly afflicted. It's interesting that people have a hard time uh, letting you know that they're afflicted. We say, oh no, everything's great, it's fine. That's because we don't believe God will do anything about it, so we conceal it. But when you believe, you freely acknowledge your loss of Manoach, your loss of inner tranquility, because you know the one that can fix it. Denial of a problem is a sign of a lack of faith. Faith starts with acknowledging the problem and then turning on it because God is bigger than your problem and then believing that he's able to perform what he has promised. Amen. I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay, I said, all men are liars. <laughs> Whether you have Manoach or not, that much is true. It is so easy to get discouraged with the human race. It is so easy to get mad at everybody. And people without Manoach are mad at everyone. You know what those of us that have received Manoach have found out? Yes, all men are liars, but God is not. And if he's working in your life, he might be able to work in theirs too. That becomes hopeful. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation. And call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. If Ruth did anything in this chapter, we see her making good on her vows. If it causes the death of a man who has received Manoah, he still fulfills his vow. Because he's at peace now, even if he dies. He was living and was not at peace while he was living. See, when we uh, do what we like and refuse what we dislike, when we renegotiate what we said last month, this month, we're showing we do not have Manoach. It doesn't matter what your doctrines are. If you cannot, like Ruth, be faithful from chapter 1 to chapter 2 to chapter 3, even if it means your death, then you don't have Manoah. You don't have an inner tranquility of soul. You're still scheming. You're still in conflict. You are still trying 
to manipulate the circumstances to justify yourself and make God guilty. That is the uh, position of most human beings. This is why the Lord says in verse 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. When you are willing to die because of the peace that you now have, and you fulfill your vows even when it hurts, if you will hold up the cup of communion, then you know that you share in resurrection. But more people hold up the cup than will actually share in resurrection. huh? Oh Lord, I truly am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains. If you can put your latest tragedy, your latest loss of um, peace in the sentence, you have freed me from my chains, it will put everything in perspective, right? And let's, let's do that together. My life is ended. I don't know how to pay my car note. But God has freed me from my chains. That doesn't work, does it? See, you cannot lose your peace given by God over a missed car payment. The reason that you lose your peace is because you still have chains you don't know about. Somebody like Naomi might be working in the background trying to figure out how to get you a piece. Manoach. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and will call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. When you were thinking about what Naomi wanted for Ruth, don't think of it as a light or superficial thing. She wanted her to have that kind of solid relationship with the Lord and the feeling that all was right with God and man. And there are a couple serious problems facing them. They cannot maintain the name of their dead and they feel a burden to do it. They cannot maintain their property through the family line and they feel a burden to do it. And no one knows what's going to happen to Ruth if Naomi dies. There are two widows and it left them in a state that Ruth and Naomi wanted to change. Amen? Amen. Man, how good for you if you can recognize when your state needs to change. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah? Uh, I know when we talk about romance, you're pretty sure that if the right person was in your life, your state would change. Can I tell you it will more clearly reveal the state that you're in? It doesn't change it. It actually shows you what's, what's there. I never realized how selfish I was until I got married. I never realized how carnal I was until I was in a covenant with someone else every day. Yeah, What we need is a state to change, and then God brings what we need. The circumstances won't do it. And if you are married right now and you are finding out that you don't have Manoah, uh, we don't need a new spouse. What we need is our state to change. Uh, when you change the spouse without changing the state, you never stop changing the spouse. Yeah. Uh, statistics prove that. Naomi knew that Ruth had a great need for a great savior. She also knew that Ruth had kept her vows. Naomi was working on a plan to introduce Ruth to a kinsman redeemer that could help them both. By the way, 
in the language that we're speaking about, uh, Greek in this case, with uh, anapolsis, you know, we have a kinsman redeemer who used the exact same wording. In fact, Carlos, why don't you read Matthew 11, 28 through 29? Come to me, all who labor and are burdened, and I shall give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your beings. See, rest for your beings. Now, I want you to know that your state can be changed by an interaction with the Messiah. But that does not mean that you stop working. In fact, you begin working when you meet Him. You begin working on the things that are important to Him. But something inside of you changes. You're at peace for the first time in your life, even though you're usually working harder than you ever did before. I met more guys that have gotten saved after a life in prison and come out and they're working for the first time in their lives. But they're at peace for the first time in their lives because they've never been right with God before and they are now. Every once in a while, they'll be honest and say, you know, this whole working thing is really hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, you need a great Savior. How was it working for you when you weren't working? <laughs> um, let's go back to Ruth, the third chapter, and read the first couple verses again, and then we'll start to move a little more quickly. One day, actually, I shouldn't read this. Somebody else read it. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you? Where you, be, where you will be provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. you got to love this. Aside from the two rhetorical questions that I already mentioned that she does not even take a breath to wait for an answer for, <laughs> there's a hint of a plot twist coming. Ruth does this all of the time, the book of Ruth. There was a hint of a plot twist when... Ruth says, am I your servant? Why are you so kind to me? Just a servant girl. Well, there's a hint right here. He says, is he not a kinsman of ours? Does not say the kinsman redeemer. Does does not mention it singularly. Mentions him as one of a group. A kinsman of ours. Well, that's going to come into play in a big way here in a few minutes. I want to talk to you about the seven, how many? Seven. The seven suggestions that are made. <laughs> okay. Uh, because good Jewish yenta, good Jewish mama, she, uh, she asked two questions that she assumes that Ruth agrees with her, whether she does or not. And then she gives her seven steps before Ruth has agreed to either the first two questions or any of the steps. Right? It's um, an, an argument by landslide, if you will. Uh, if you want to write them down, number one, wash. Never a bad idea. Girl, you stink. Which is why, number two, perfume yourself. You've been working in the field all day. Number three. Put on your best clothes. Fancy, go put your red dress on. 
Not really. That that song was bad. I just <laughs> In fact, I'm sure that it was Jennifer who was listening to that song. <laughs> we go with more of the police. You don't have to put your red dress on. Okay. Uh, so what were we doing? Number four. Number four. Go to the threshing floor. Number five, wait or hide, I don't know, until he is finished eating and drinking. Six, uncover his feet and lie down. That's a pretty strange request. Seven, the least popular. He will tell you what to do. <laughs> All right, can I hand out a few scriptures? Yes. Okay, let's work around the room for this. So, Natalie, you take, uh, Miss Moloch, you take John 13, 8. Mandy, you take 2 Corinthians 2, 14. Christy, Revelation 19, 7 through 8. Uh, Jennifer Hall, Luke three sixteen through seventeen. <laughs> the guys are jumping up and down over here. Uh, Nolan, John twenty one fifteen. Clay, Revelation one seventeen. Chris, First John five three through four. You'll notice that there's a law prophets writing theme going through these seven. I doubled up on the law since they're seven, and otherwise, yeah, the law's good. Uh, go ahead and put this on the screen for people taking notes. That way they'll actually pay attention when they hear the verse. said 117, right? Yes. So, our first one, wash. Let's look at John 13, 8. It turns out that Naomi's advice to Ruth is still good advice to us. If you will not let Jesus wash you, then you cannot be wed to him. Period. You can't just get washed by Him. You have to learn more about Him. That's like putting on your perfume. The fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Nothing is worse than Christians who misrepresent what God's Word says. If you want to be the fragrance of Christ, you have to cover yourself in His Word. Okay, number three. Revelation 19, 7 through 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for righteous acts of the saints. You know, the best clothes were not the one with the deepest plunging neckline. 
Uh, I drove down Bissonette the other day following one of our elders on a shortcut, and uh, I saw a woman that had to be 400 pounds that was wearing diamonds. And uh, they weren't the kind of diamonds that you, you know, clump coal together and put enough pressure on. They were diamonds cut into the sides of her pants. In other words, the fabric was missing in a diamond shape, and what was bulging out of it was her flesh. And uh, it's because she was selling herself, or at least attempting to, or a rental. I don't know how it worked. I've never engaged in that. But I know that the best clothes to put on have nothing to do with the ones that show carnality the most. The best clothes to put on are the righteous acts of the saints. The bride of Christ is not only washed and perfumed, she is wearing the deeds of Christ. See, this story takes for granted that that Boaz is all that. Kind of like in my house, I took it for granted she loved me, you know? Uh, It's a very typical male thing to do. But the bride, in this case, she has to wash. The bride, in this case, she has to change the way that she smells. The bride, in this case, has to put on a different kind of deeds. You know, there's a reason the Holy Spirit chose these things for us, and we're not hearing what Boaz's mama said to him that morning. You know, Boaz, pick up your towel. Wash behind your ears. When you talk to her, you have to look her in the eye. We don't get that. And the reason we don't get it is the Holy Spirit wanted us as the bride of Christ to know how to approach Christ. We don't need to know how Christ approaches us. That's already been demonstrated in a crucifixion. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's go to number four. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Limp-wristed preachers. Powder puff, candy, soft, little lollipops. They preach about the character of Christ, but they don't tell you you must go to the threshing floor. The threshing floor is where his winnowing fork is in his hand. It's where Ruth went to meet Boaz, and all believers must go to the threshing floor to meet Jesus there. It is at the threshing floor that the stalks receive a beating. That beating separates that which doesn't belong from what does belong. You're not being beaten by your master. You're being beaten by the environment that the stalks live in. And here's the thing. The ones who are willing to fight through the flesh to come to the master at the threshing floor, they get baptized in the Holy Ghost. If you will not be baptized in the Holy Ghost, then you need to consider the fact that you might be chaff calling yourself a Christian. Now, I am not a United Pentecostal. I don't believe you can get filled with the Holy Ghost unless you're already in love with Jesus. But if you are in love with Jesus, one of the ways that you prove that is because you get filled with His Spirit. Getting caught somewhere between 3 and 4 
begins to unwind the whole process. Because can you really put on the righteous deeds of, of, the, of the bride, the, the fine linen, if you're not baptized in the Holy Ghost? No. No, they're still your best clothes, not his best clothes. Mm-hmm. Need to read Matthew 22. You'll figure it out. God will give you insight into it. Okay, number five. John 21, 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Naomi told Ruth, you need to wait till he's finished eating and drinking. It was after Jesus and Peter had had a meal together that Jesus asked him if he loved him. And the way that he would show love is if he would feed those sheep when there was no secondary gain involved for him. He's not feeding the sheep so that he can go sit at a meal with Jesus. He's already had the meal with Jesus. Now he doesn't know what's coming. Do you love me? Then go feed the sheep. See, we sometimes get saved because we want a secondary gain. We want a better life. We want heaven in the next life. We want, we want, we want. But where your relationship with the Lord really shows love is in the absence of secondary gain, do you do what he says? Because if you'll only do what he says, if there's a neat little treat for you, then you don't really love him, you love the treat. (laughs) Isn't that true? So one of the things that happens as you're coming to him along the way is he stops allowing you to see the secondary gain. Even if it's there, you can't see how it's there. He simply asks for obedience. That's how Peter got restored. You want to be restored? Start obeying him when it doesn't make sense. Not when it does. Number six. Revelation chapter one, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I love this. I've never heard Johnny Cash read that before. (laughs) But now I feel as if it's more special. We found out from Naomi that Ruth needed to go to the feet of Boaz, uncover his feet and lie down. What we see in the book of Revelation are faithful people falling at the feet of Jesus as if they were dead. Man, if we could learn to fall down to his will as if we were dead to our own, what could you not do? See, if you could learn to submit to him as a dead man, meaning that you had no resistance left alive in you, well, you might see the kind of things that John saw in the book of Revelation, because that's how the book opens. How about 1 John 5, 3 through 4? 1 John 5, 3 through 4. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Okay, hypothesize with me for a minute. Ruth runs out. She goes through the car wash. She gets her little scented uh, Christmas tree that burns her eyes, right? She washes in perfumes. She puts on her best clothes. She runs out to meet Boaz at the threshing floor. She waits until he's eaten and had some grape juice. And then she uncovers his feet and she lays down. So far, so good. And then he says, you know what, Ruth? Here's what I want you to do. And she says, nah, and walks off. Is she married to him? 
but the theologians have convinced you that you cannot do what Jesus says and still be married to him. Now, you wouldn't accept that in the story of Ruth and Boaz. Why would you accept that in your relationship with the Lord? Oh, we're married. I just don't do what he says. We're married. It's just optional. We're married. I'll get around to it. Okay. Well, you wouldn't accept the plot twist like that in this story. Let's see if God will accept yours on that day. I personally think that it's because you are married that you want to do what he says. And if you do not want to do what he says, you either never married him or have fallen out of love with him. And uh, we'll let you figure out what happens with that. Would you like to go further in the book of Ruth? Yes. yes. Okay, so uh, somebody, Larissa, pick up Ruth 3 and verse 5. Every Jewish mother-in-law has that verse highlighted in her Tanakh. <laughs> They're not allowed to touch the text except with a golden pointed finger. But they've all highlighted that one, I promise. If you were a Jewish mother, you would quilt that one. You'd paint it on a wall. It would be a housewarming present every time you went over. Uh, I'm sorry, that's a bad joke. Go ahead through seven. <laughs> Uh, wait, he was what? <laughs> yeah, who can really know what that means? Okay. He went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovering his feet, and lay down. I think it's probably time to interject some things here uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, it would be very possible, not understanding the culture, to begin to infer a sexual transaction of some kind occurring here. I, I want to assure you that's not what it is. There are many things in the Bible that are uh, gratuitously sexual. Uh, the kind of thing that if you can read it in the original language would make you blush. If you've never read Song of Songs all the way through, you know, um, you're missing out. But wait till you're married. And uh, because of that, I wanted to stop right here and teach you a little bit about a threshing floor. Now, I looked because I have pictures of threshing floors in Israel. I have altars in Israel. I've got a lot of neat things from Israel, but I can find none of them. So, um, <coughs> this is similar to a threshing floor in Israel. Uh, the stones would look different there. They, the stones in Jerusalem more resemble the color of stone in San Antonio, everywhere. In fact, it's called Jerusalem stone. That makes it easier to remember if you're from Jerusalem. And um, what happens here is the bundles that are in the background, these are, you grab with your left hand the stalk, you grab uh, the uh, scythe or the sickle, scythe is a bigger one, the sickle, with your right hand, and, and you cut the bunch. And you remember we spent some time talking about how Boaz left handfuls for Ruth and how your king leaves you secret stalks of revelation, how much fun it is to gather. Well, eventually, all of that revelation, it, it gets tested. <laughs> the merit of it is tested at the threshing floor. Because when it's put under pressure, when it's beaten, when it's winnowed, what that looks like is you either drag a sledge, sledge, sled over it, 
while it is spread out in this circle uh, and the weight of it crushes the chaff and leaves the grain, or you physically beat it with something, and then you stick a winnowing fork in it, and you throw it into the air, and the wind causes the chaff to fall outside of the circle while the grain falls inside the circle. Yeah, uh, it, It's like the prosperity preacher and, and, uh, and the Baptist pastor that got together to decide how to handle the offering. Y'all haven't heard that? So they stood in a circle, they drew it on the ground, and they said, oh, this is what I do. I, um, I throw, the Baptist pastor says, I throw all of the offering in the air, and whatever lands in the circle is mine, whatever lands outside the circle is for the poor. And uh, the prosperity preacher looked and laughed, and he said, I do exactly the same thing. I throw it in the air, and whatever God wants, he keeps whatever lands on the ground belongs to me. And uh, so the threshing floor... <laughs> The threshing floor um, is a place of separation. I know that when you read Matthew 3 or Luke 3 or read it in Mark, you get all excited and say, I want to be baptized in the Holy Ghost and in fire. I assure you, you don't. You're misunderstanding it. The winnowing fork separates that which gets the Holy Ghost from that which gets burned with unquenchable fire. Uh, Many times the, the spirit is fire in a good way, here, the spirit is fire in a very uh, powerfully destructive way. So, when you're thinking of a threshing floor, you need to think of a mountain. I didn't like this one because it's a valley, and that's, that's a serious mistake. They were saddlebacked mountains because you needed a wind to come by. You needed the grain to be able to go into the air, chaff to blow away, and the grain to fall to do that. You need a serious move of God's spirit, Right? And that spirit guarantees that the grain gets into the barn, but everything that is not grain gets burned up. That is what Jesus' ministry was an outstats. Okay? Uh, and he wasn't United Pentecostal either, but they understood that. The threshing looked something like this. This is a guy named Abu Bakr in Iraq. <laughs> So that's not actually Abu Bakr, but he looks exactly like him, trust me. And, uh, and that's what's happening. There is a wind blowing behind him. He's throwing the pile into the air, and the separation occurs by the Spirit. Because if you had to do it by hand, you would damage some grain, and you would keep some chaff. In other words, you're not capable of doing it. God's going to have to do it. But he puts everybody into this process. Everybody. So... The next time you're going through what feels like you're being threshed or winnowed or sifted, understand it might be to separate the, the wheat from the grain in your life. Amen. Suffering has a way of eliminating the superfluous. I mean, it, it shows you kind of uh, what really matters in life. I, I, as a pastor, been in the hospital an awful, awful lot, and I have never walked past a room and listen to grieving relatives with somebody who's dying and the guy in the bed saying, you know, I wish I'd worked more. I wish I'd bought more crap, you know. Uh, I wish I had more storage units full of more crap. Uh, you, you never hear that. Uh, they start talking about things like, I'm sorry I wasn't there for you, you know. Sorry I never took you to church. Sorry I didn't pray with you. I'm sorry I didn't read with you, you know. I mean, those are the things that people talk about. 
Well, how much better would it be to get winnowed before the end? Huh? But it's, it's a thought. So, yeah. So, when um, when Jesus um, tells Peter that Satan has asked to sift him as wheat, yeah. it's exactly what's happening. And um, the beating that Peter took, this is so complex. The Lord knows that it's coming, but who inflicted the beating? Well, it was a combination of two things. A temptation that was laid before Peter, right? Not by God, by the devil. Succumbing to that temptation because the flesh wanted it, and then having to deal with the results of that sin. Jesus told him in advance, I am uh, praying for you, and when you've returned... In other words, Jesus always planned to restore him. Jesus wasn't the author of any of it. Satan was the author of it. But who provided the opportunity for Satan to do it? Peter did. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he picked up some fisherman words. He denied not once, but twice. Not, not just twice, but three times. And uh, the Lord already had him plan, uh, in mind a plan to restore him. Uh, that's because he loved him. That's not a guarantee that if you submit to every fleshly, devilish temptation that you'll be restored or that God's working in your fleshly, devilish temptation. It was just an acknowledgement that it was happening, right? But if you find yourself being sifted, uh, understand something. The pieces of you that are being broken off needed to go. They needed to go. What remains is what can't be shaken. Yeah, but I mean, you recognize that language? The Bible's an agricultural uh, book. And uh, so, hey, why don't we read it in Isaiah? Would that, I mean, we can read this in Isaiah. Who wants to read that? I'm overwhelmed, but since I asked Megan to come up, then Megan, you should read Isaiah 41, 13 through 16. Even if he calls you a worm and little Israel? <laughs> Listen, that's the thing, though. He's going to help him, and part of helping you sometimes is you realizing you're not all of that. Sometimes you're actually the problem. I mean, that's, that's huge. It's a giant step in maturity in your life when you can realize that you've identified the problem and it's you. Uh, it's much easier to call everybody else the problem and to be sure they, they all have problems, right? I mean, to be sure. But they're probably not the problem. The biggest problem in your life is almost never someone else. It's almost always you. You know, I mean, that's... Who was Peter's biggest problem, right? We were talking about Peter. It's Peter. It's not even the devil. Because the devil would have no hold on him if Peter didn't give it to him, right? And I'm sure Peter didn't like Judas much. Uh, I mean, it seemed, you can feel the rift several times. I'm sure that Peter had issues with other people that he could point to, and they're probably all very valid and very true, but none of them forced Peter to say those bad words and deny Jesus three times. See, we can't own up to your own actions. When you're the Savior in every situation, even when you clearly sin, it's because you're immature. And when God grabs your hand, one of the first things that he does is say things like, Hey, little worm. 
I'm going to help you. See, he'll both call you a worm and he'll help you. You know, the clowns at the compact center, they'll never call you a worm, but they also cannot help you. In this ministry, we will let you come to a collision with who you really are, but we will also help you. Never one without the other. That's never, there's never a time that correction should not involve restoration. Ever. Uh, that's an execution. And there are times for execution. I mean, there are times for that. I'm not saying there aren't. Uh, but if you're here, we didn't want to kill you. Uh, a correction was to restore you. If we wanted to kill you, you would not because you would be dead. Right? <laughs> Let's keep reading in uh, Isaiah. I am the one who helps you, declare the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall crush the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the princes shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall I would leave you to see that it's the wind that carries off the chaff, right? It's not the deacons or the bouncer at the church. It's the wind who's supposed to do that. And um, uh, there's another big reason for this. There's a close connection that I'm sure you missed. I missed it the first few times that I read it. I actually had to have it pointed out by somebody. And um, accompanying with the threshing of the wheat is rejoicing. See, it's very important that if you're going to go through the beating of a lifetime, that each day there's something to look forward to. And these guys that are working in that circle, they were talking about it's hard work. I mean, carrying those sheaves there, uh, pushing a th threshing sledge, sled over it, or uh, beating it by hand, it's, it's, it's hard work. And so they had something to look forward to each night. They ate, and they drank, and... Um, the people with lesser responsibilities, when the meal was over, they went home. The people with greater responsibility there, they slept with the grain. And uh, that's why Boaz is sleeping at the threshing floor. It's his field. And if he leaves, somebody might come and steal all of the product of the work that day. So they eat and they throw a party for the hard work that just happened. And then they push back from the table and... The little people, you know, those people, they got to go home. But you could just pull up a pile of grain and sleep off your wine until the next day. I mean, that, that, that really is the agricultural lifestyle of Israel for centuries. And so this setting is not strange to them. It's not like, um, you know, Ruth and Boaz met in a chat room and then decided to uh, go to some secluded place. This was a setting that everybody understood. Uh, but women would not be at the threshing floor at night because they were not responsible. They were workers, but they were not uh, responsible. Okay? So uh, the threshing floor was the place where the stalks were beaten. It was the place where the wind would carry the waste to the burn pile. The uh, heavy grain. Somebody say heavy grain. Heavy, heavy grain. Fell at the master's feet. The heavy grain always falls at the master's feet. And it is falling at the master's feet in the midst of threshing that shows that you're his. Wow. 
And see, I've been threshed a little bit this year, and there are a lot of things that I can be openly criticized for. I mean, and you're right. You, you would be right, and a lot more that you failed to say, but I'm still standing at the Master's feet. And some people that have been standing with me 20 years, just totally weaned out. I mean, they ran off with their girlfriends and did all the things. That, see, I'm standing at the Master's feet. Okay, uh, I can live with the fact that maybe my humor doesn't suit someone. I can live with the fact that, for sure, cigars offend most. I, I, I understand that. You will never find me anywhere other than the master's feet. It's not going to happen. So we have to decide uh, not what level of yuckiness you want to accept in somebody's life. That, that's not what I'm advocating for. But what I am advocating for is you have to decide what it is that causes friendship, love, and devotion. And you want to stick close to people who stick close to the master. Amen. Okay? Amen. No, don't get divided over whether somebody puts up Hanukkah bushes in their house or not. Figure out whether or not during tough times they fall at the master's feet. Amen. Find that out. And I can tell you a lot of people, they get the outside of the cup right, but they don't do anything for the inside. Um, I have learned that those petty differences are just that. They're petty. The one that you want to stand with is the one that when they are getting the uh, character tested from the outside beating upon them so that things are leaking from their eyes, ears, and nose, they fall down at the master's feet. Okay, um, You know, that shouldn't change whether you're burying your children, whether or not uh, you're having disappointing trials. Whether your income has changed, your home has changed, if your own spouse walks away, it should not be able to get you to fall anywhere other than the master's feet. Amen. Okay, and I'm just going to tell you that there's a lot fewer of those people than there are people like Orpa who's no, no, I'm staying with you. They're fleet-footed gazelles as soon as it's thrashing. Wow. And everybody like wants to be in that group, you know, like I'm there, I'm there with you. But I just found out through the last few decades, everybody says that, and I mean almost none actually do it. And we're trying to raise up a ministry that minimizes some of those pitiable differences and says, hey, I want to stand with those who fall at the master's feet. Okay? That's where heavy grain falls. I don't know what light grain does. You're light in the loafers, you probably won't make it here. Okay. The harvest was very hard work, and when the day was over, they would rejoice with wine and food. The owner of the field stayed at the threshing floor overnight because the grain was there and the grain was valuable. Less responsible servants went home. Uh, read verse 8. I don't know who was reading. That's a point somewhat. Yeah? In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and, di and discovered the woman, a woman lying at his feet. <laughs> um, verse 9 Who are you, he asked I am your servant Ruth, she said Spread the corner of your garment over me Since you are a kinsman redeemer Okay, I thought of many things That we could cover here But some that were the most interesting to me I think probably um, Are interesting because they're sensational I thought I would focus on the more Substantive issues um, It's disappointing because that may be to a few of you I think ultimately it will be edifying um, we're not going to get into how he knew there was a woman there, uh, but he couldn't tell who she was and all. 
suffice it to say it's very dark. There shouldn't be a woman there. Uh, the Hebrew uh, word that is translated startled there, it, it's something like rolled over. He, somehow or another, he reached out and touched something that he was surprised to see. Okay, But it's still, uh, here, here's why I don't want to go that far down that road. It's not sexual. It's just something's out of place. He recognized, can you imagine how startled you'd be if you, Brampton, went to sleep? And uh, in the middle of the night, you're like, whoa, that's a girl. <laughs> that is kind of what is implied here. It was, not, um, it was not that they had inappropriate contact. It's that something about him rolling over his foot, his hand, his leg, something touched woman. And he's like, no, <laughs> who are you? And it's dark enough, he can't, he can't tell who it is, Okay. Nothing was malicious here on her part or his. She's literally down by the, the, the word for feet here is feet. I mean, it's, they're not uh, parallel or prone. They're perpendicular. Okay? Yeah, I think we got that. Uh, I hope we got that. Who are you? I, here, here's three, three issues. You might want to write them down. She says, I am your servant. Ruth. So servant is the first one. Um, I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Corner of your garment is the second. Since you are a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer is the third. These are three cultural elements. And it's, <laughs> listen, not only is she not offering some kind of sexual favor here, it's, it's, uh, it's far more serious. She's actually offering total subservience. <laughs> we're, we're, not, we're not talking about some kind of deed. We're talking about a proposal that would be lifelong subservience. And I want to show you that. Um, the term that Ruth uses to refer to herself as a servant in this verse is different than every other interaction she's had with Boaz. Um, we can put this on the screen. The first one was in Ruth 2.13. In Ruth 2.13 where I said there was a small hint. It says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord? You have given me comfort and have spoken to your servant. Though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. Uh, I, I personally read that as being just slightly coy. You know, I'm not capable of doing it, but Jennifer really is. You know, she can turn her head slightly, look at me a little bit through her hair, and I can tell she meant what she said, but she meant something else too, Right? I believe that's happening in 2.13. But let me show you the word that is there. She says, you've spoken kindly to your servant. I don't have the uh, standing one of your uh, servant girls. That word is um, sifa or sipa. A feminine noun meaning a maidservant, a female slave. Man, that's not a pretty word, is it? It means slave exactly like you think it means slave. She's saying, I do not have the standing of the lowest person in your life. That was 2.13. That is not what she says when she shows up at the threshing floor. What she says at the threshing floor is a different word, and it implied something different. It's ama. A feminine noun indicating a maidservant or slave girl, which is why it's still translated servant. It depicts a simple maidservant. It refers to a girl who is a servant in a legal sense. Do you see the last part? 
It is applied to concubines or concubines. Um, see, the first time she talked to him, she said, I don't even have the standing of one of your slaves. When she shows up at the threshing floor, she says, it's Ruth. Um, your servant or possibly, you know, one day, your concubine. The first one had no possibility of marriage. The second one implies it. See, that's an interesting thing, don't you think? For Boaz, he wakes up in the middle of the night wondering just how much wine he drank. And, uh, and there is a young woman at his feet who, in a very interesting sort of way, is asking to be more than uh, just a slave. Okay? But consider that from Ruth's point of view. Something has motivated her to offer not a, an evening, not a moment, a lifetime of connection to Boaz that would entitle her to zero rights. Let that sit for a minute. She's not offering Boaz a cheap one-night stand. She is offering to take the status of a concubine. Okay, second, we're going to put these together in a minute. When she says, spread the corner of your garment over me. Um, yeah, you can kill it for a minute. So, Libby, read Numbers 15, 37 through 40. And uh, Brenton, read 1 Samuel 24, 5 through 7. And Johnny Cash, read Luke 8, 43 through 44. I give everybody nicknames. Don't let that bother you. If it does bother you, just think you're being threshed. It's Luke 8, 43 through 44. So whenever you got it. That wording is so important. You were given a garment with tassels uh, to remember the Lord's commands so that you would not prostitute yourself. See, Ruth is not prostituting herself. So that you would not go after the lust of your own heart and eyes. She's not going after the lust of her heart and eyes. She's doing something altogether different. When she says, spread your garment over me, this garment is called a talit. And... Um, all Jewish men, because of Numbers 15.37, are supposed to wear it, although you're going to hear commentaries say only Levitical men. They're wrong. So uh, all Jewish men are supposed to wear this. The corners are called kanaf, or, yeah, kanaf, and the tassels are called zitzit. They, uh, the correct halakha on how to make one of these involves 613 knots, one for each command that God gives his people in the word. This is what Boaz is wearing. And so when she says, I want you to spread 
the corner, corner, off of the garment over me, what she is literally saying is, I want to come under the commands that God gave you. You have an authority, a calling that God gave, and I want to be under that. What does she find attractive about Boaz? The man that God made him to be. Amen. Uh, those of you that have been through marriage counseling know the other things that we do with these that Israel did, and we just won't get into that at this moment. But to give you an idea, while they mean the corners of the tassels symbolize commands that came from God, and she wanted to be covered with that, the other principles that were with them is at certain points in Israel's history, the corners had uh, seals on them. So a particular nobleman might uh, take the corner of his garment and press it into wax, and it would identify that it was his, uh, a, a letter from him. And uh, I even read one commentary that said, you wanted to divorce your wife, you cut the, the uh, hem out of her garment. Now, she didn't wear these, so uh, I, that's why I'm not presenting it. But my point is, is the hem of your garment represented more than just a tassel. It had to do with your identity. And what she's asking for is, can I be a concubine? Can I be a servant in your house? I want to come underneath God's calling in your life. Now that becomes kind of beautiful, huh? Uh, We we learn a little more about this as you see David conscious, stricken, and afflicted. Uh, 1 Samuel 24, 5 through 7. It came about... Afterwards, that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. I don't know how many times you've read that, but it bothers me most times I read it. I'm like, Saul's just got that. You shouldn't have just cut off the corner. You cut off his head. And uh, commentaries will say, you know, he was conscience stricken because he was trying to show that he could kill Saul. And, and he, he didn't do it. And there's some merit for that in the text. David says, you know, I could have killed you. But that's like the low-hanging fruit. The truth is in it, he's conscious stricken because the part of the garment that he cut off are the very commands that Saul was ruling by. See, Saul was a bad king, but he was appointed king by God. And when David cut that off, what he's saying is, you, you're not worthy of the commands, but they're not David's to give or take. Did, does that make sense to you? So when she wants to be covered with these, she's acknowledging that something is unique about Boaz. God has given him a God-ordained, the King James word would be mantle. Uh, We would, in our vernacular, say mezuzah. You have a calling, and I want to come under it. And that's beautiful, isn't it? Luke 8, 43 and 44. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, right? Yeah. And I immediately, and immediately her bleeding stopped. See, when this woman could find no healing, and she'd been there, had it 12 years. She's the same age as Jarius' daughter. It's a very interesting parallel. Maybe, maybe even she uh, represents a Gentile coming into the church. I mean, we'll do that when we do the Newer Testament. The, the point here is, She's not touching Jesus' magical shroud of Turin. This is not um, even the handkerchief that was prayed over and somebody healed. She's grabbing the corner of his garment saying, 
I know who you, you are. Mm -hmm. See, you embody the commands of God. And if I could just get under the corner of that thing, if I could just grab it, that's where all the healing is. That's the secret place of the Most High where he spreads his wings. Do you remember that Boaz said, under whose wings you have come to take refuge? Yes. That's because when they prayed, they would stretch out this like this, and to Jews it looked like wings. Sometimes they put it over their head and pull it down like this, which also looked like uh, a mother covering her, her young. And... Um, so in their mind, when the sun rose with healing in its wings, in their mind, this was the place where this is the secret place of the Most High. So not only is she not doing something sexual, she's going much further than that. She's saying, I know who, who you are. I, I, I want to be identified with that. I mean, that's really pretty beautiful, don't you think? So um, uh, let's move to Kinsman Redeemer. Uh, Ruth wanted to come under the God-ordained purpose of Boaz and was willing to do it with no rights as a concubine. You know, that's, that's incredible. Uh, the next thing, she uses a word that she's got no reason to use. Uh, let's put this on the screen. Kinsman Redeemer. Uh, this is Goel in Hebrew. And... Um, it's Strong's number 1350, a verb meaning to redeem or act as a kinsman redeemer. The word means to act as a redeemer for a deceased kinsman. And it quotes this very verse. To redeem or buy back from bondage. To uh, redeem or buy back from a kinman, kinsman's possession. To avenge a kinsman's murder. That's that. We covered that uh, uh, in Joshua. Uh, to redeem an object through payment. Theologically, this word is used to convey God's redemption of individuals from spiritual death and his redemption of a nation of Israel from Egyptian bondage and also from the exile. The reason that this is, is interesting, though, is um, if she just wanted to marry Boaz, why is she calling him a kinsman and what difference would it make? She's a Moabite. She, she's a Moabite. Marrying Boaz does nothing for, for the Moabite. This, you follow me? Mm -hmm. I mean, if she's got property back in Moab, Boaz has got nothing to do with it. She had no kids. So why call him a kinsman redeemer? And uh, Boaz catches this. See, Ruth is treating Boaz like he is her savior. To be clear, she was free to marry anyone. Her husband's dead. She has no obligation anywhere. Um, the use of the term goel indicated her desire to do something that would benefit Naomi, Elimelech, and Mahlon, which is why Naomi said he's shown kindness to the living and the dead. Yeah. See, by her calling him a kinsman, she's not just saying, I'm going to come be a concubine. She's not just saying, I want to come under your godly calling. She's saying, conditional upon this, uh, my request is conditioned upon you redeeming the family that I've joined. Amen. Do you see how selfless love is? I mean, this is like the Macedonian jailer. He gets saved, but his whole family 
get saved. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's I, I don't know. When I realized that, I was kind of blown away. She was effectively saying, I will give up all my rights and be a concubine. I will follow you as you follow the Lord. And the benefits of marriage are going to fall on my mother-in-law and dead relatives. You know, Boaz understood this. He understood how selfless what she was doing was. And he loved it even more. I mean, like this uh, this was sealing the deal for him. Uh, Ruth 3, 10 through 11. Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. Uh, now, put that in perspective. What you're doing right now is greater than having left Moab, having went with Naomi, having worked in a field, uh, having called Israel your people. This, what you're doing now, is greater than that. And he's going to say, why? Go ahead, Judah. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Now hold. We could read that in the West and say Boaz was older and he's saying, no, you didn't go for a younger guy. That is not what he said. He's saying, you didn't choose a husband. You were choosing a redeemer for your family. Do do you hear the difference there? You could have gotten a young husband. You could have gotten an old husband. You could have gotten a rich husband. You didn't go after that. You didn't go after anything for you. You were going after something that would be a kindness to Elimelech's memory, a kindness to Malhon's memory, uh, more than a kindness to Naomi. It literally puts her back in the lineage of Israel. It literally redeems her property for the future. It, it, it is more for Naomi than for Ruth. At least on the surface. <laughs> I kind of think Ruth loved him. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, my, my point is, is it's a very selfless yeah. act. Uh, go ahead and uh, read 10 and 11 again, Judah. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you're a woman of noble character. <laughs> so, Ruth's made quite a name for herself. Yeah. Notice again, they are not uh, saying, wow, that Ruth is shapely. What are they saying? She's got a fantastic character. Okay? They were all impressed with who the woman was, not how she looked. And this, this shows something. Okay. I'm going to go through seven of them for you, and, and if you have questions, we'll talk about them, because they're, uh, you know, they're, they're not from our culture, but uh, as I sat about this today, and I was studying and thinking about really what a kinsman redeemer is, a goel in this situation, uh, let me just refresh your memory, okay? The defining passage on this is Deuteronomy 25, it's 5 through 10, and I uh, know if brothers, somebody say brothers, brothers, who are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. So that would mean whoever Elimelech's brother was has a duty to Naomi. Okay? Once Malhan and Kilion are dead. So there's no family line, so whoever Elimelech's brother was. Or Malhan's brother, but he died too. Right? 
So we have a series of failures. But if brothers who are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that the name will not be blotted out of Israel. So question number one, what does a Moabite care about the family line of Elimelech? It was Naomi who needed to have the Israelite carried on, not Ruth. Does that make sense? She's showing concern for Naomi. Number two, Naomi acted selflessly as well. Can anybody tell me why? Because what? No. I mean, she did do that. It's funny. See, we are Westerners. And so we're thinking in terms of what is most attractive. We're thinking like Westerners. You don't know how old Naomi is, and you don't know how old Boaz is. But you know Boaz is significantly older than Ruth because he keeps saying so. <laughs> Why didn't Naomi approach Boaz? Why didn't she do that? It's because you picture her old and past that. What if she's not? She theorized earlier, if I had a child today, would you guys wait for him to grow up? So maybe she could. I would say that Naomi, if she married Boaz, where would that leave Ruth? You follow me? So these women care for each other. By Ruth going to Boaz, he's providing for Naomi and for her. If Naomi goes to Boaz, Ruth's cut out of the mix. Okay? Uh, Three, Naomi was the steward of Elimelech's property not Ruth. By Ruth asking Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer, Ruth is providing the property for Naomi. Number four, if Ruth had married a non-kinsman redeemer, if she had gone after the younger or older man, whether rich or poor, right? If Ruth had married a non-kinsman redeemer, where would that have left Naomi? No family line and no property. You see how complicated this actually was? Number five. It is likely that Boaz wanted to marry Ruth at first glance, given his behavior. But why couldn't he? He needed to know where Ruth and Naomi's thoughts were about this. Because if he marries, Na- oh, if he marries Ruth, and Ruth doesn't see him as a kinsman and is not asking for as a kinsman, then it doesn't redeem Naomi. If he married Naomi because he wanted the property, it would cut Ruth out. Very interesting, huh? Of course, there's one other reason he can't just uh, approach anybody. There's another kinsman, and he doesn't know how he feels about it. I mean, it's interesting. See, to a Jew, by the time we're in the second chapter, these thoughts are beginning to swirl. And it's like, how's it going to work out? How's it? You already know how it's going to work out so it doesn't strike you the same way. Um, six, Boaz mentions age frequently. He was probably Elimelech's brother, but marrying Naomi could displace Ruth. And marrying Ruth, whom he had affection for, would leave Naomi without redemption unless Ruth offered it this way. It had to come from Ruth to him. It could not be him approaching them. Seventh, in the fourth chapter... 
Boaz is referred to as a kinsman redeemer of a particular woman. Do you know who it is? Naomi. Not Ruth. Okay? And the son that is born them comes through Ruth, but do you know who they credit it to? Naomi. Naomi. By her saying, I'm willing to be a concubine with no rights. I want to follow you as you follow the Lord. And what I'm asking you to do for me is really for them. We see love's request. See, love cares about what happens to the other person, not you. That's beautiful. When our generation uses the term love, they think of other things. Naomi had three problems. How can I maintain Elimelech's name since my sons are dead? How can I maintain the inheritance since it needs to stay in the family? And third, how can I provide for Ruth, my daughter-in-law? In chapter 3, we saw love's request answer all three problems. That's beautiful. Okay, somebody read Ruth 3.12. Because there's something just as beautiful coming. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Okay, hold there. Well, this is one reason that Boaz may have been a little more reserved than you would have liked him to have been when he first met Ruth. You know, Uh, He realized when he saw the family line and name and all that he was not the closest. Somebody else had a right to this. I'd like you to consider Boaz's integrity for a minute. A woman shows up at the threshing floor. Nobody else is around. She wants to marry him. In the middle of the night, they discuss this. And his response is, you lay there until morning, and then I will go handle this. He placed integrity over passion. Now listen to me, if you can't place integrity over passion, then what's to say when you get passion's desire that your integrity will grow? What if it doesn't? What if you become passionate about someone at a gas pump? What if you become passionate about a boss? What if you become passionate about someone you work with? See, when you can't place integrity over passion, how could you ever be trusted? Boaz demonstrated this, and so did Ruth from the beginning. That's, that's really, and he started doing it a long time before she showed up at the threshing floor. You know, the other kinsmen, he didn't even know this was happening, right? I mean, even in the chapter when, when the idea is proposed, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I want the property. He doesn't even seem to know there is a Moabitess with it. Does that make sense to you? So Boaz could have taken what he, taken what he wanted at any moment, but he never did. Come on, ladies, you're looking for the one that wouldn't take. Wouldn't, even if they could get away with it. Guys, you're looking for the one who doesn't want to place passion over integrity. See, that's a big deal. It, it might be the largest requirement, right? This is, this is how you end up with something that's redeemed, rather than something that is damned. And uh, uh, if you consider 
Verse 13, stay here for the night, and in the morning if he wants to redeem you good, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. You know, Boaz trusted that God was going to work it out, even if the other redeemer was there. He wasn't scared he wouldn't get what he wanted, and so he, he took it. He, he trusted the Lord. Boaz was sacrificial in the way that he was willing to do what this other man would not do. That gave him a chance to show exceptional love to Ruth, Naomi, Malhan, and Elimelech. Up to this point, you see Naomi's sacrifice. You see Ruth's sacrifice. Him placing integrity over passion, it gave him the opportunity in a way he wouldn't know to show that he was also sacrificing. See, Ruth and Naomi knew that the other guy wouldn't do it. But he did. See how his hero status is growing because of his integrity? Whereas if he had taken it then, then we wouldn't have even known it was special that the other guy wouldn't do it. But now he's distinguished himself from all other suitors. That's incredible. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. Yeah, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. It seems that he didn't want the sanctity of the event that was now birthed in their heart to be misunderstood by anyone. Yeah. Okay, They didn't do anything shameful. There was nothing wrong. Uh, that's, that's not it. It's, it's that he didn't want that assumption to be made if it could be avoided. Yeah. Right? Um, let's see. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it, what's that say? Six measures. Six measures. That's an unusual number, don't you think? Yeah. Of barley, and he put it on her. Then he went back to his town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, asked, how did it go, my daughter? It's the first time she asked a question where she really wanted to know the answer. (laughs) Isn't that clever? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> She'd been home just calling all of her friends, asking if anybody had any extra information. She had her binoculars sitting uh, right next to the Tanakh. Yeah, she'd been scrolling Facebook all night. Uh, then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Who was the barley for? He gave it to Ruth, but it was for Naomi. That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. Now, I'm forgetting. I'm just getting old. Ruth was from where? Oh, but Naomi was from? Yeah. Interesting. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest. He will not manoach until the matter is settled today. So let's get into six measures. Uh, this would be our final for the evening because it's uh, it's late. In Ruth three one, somebody read read, read Ruth three one. Go ahead, get it. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, "My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you?" You you need Manoah. That word is not home; it's rest. Should I not try to find rest for you? Now, the last verse of the chapter is 3.18. The man won't have Manoah until he's done it. 
Do you see what's at stake? This inner tranquility, this sense of peace that makes you wonder why six measures? And, you know, he didn't give it to Ruth. He gave it to Naomi. Well, Naomi is an Israelite. Where would she have been reading in her Tanakh and first found six and then we have rest? Could it be... In Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning. By the way, when did the conversation happen? It was evening. And there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, and on the seventh day, he rested. See, Boaz said, don't go back to Naomi empty-handed. It was a sign for Naomi, not a sign for Ruth. She wanted Ruth to find rest, and Boaz sent Naomi a Jewish code. Naomi seemed to have understood it because her response was, the man will not rest until this is done. God created the earth in six days. And then he rested. Do you know why? Because he loves this creation. And when a man really loves a woman, like Percy Sledge said, when a man really loves a woman, he won't rest until he has created that environment they can get married in. And it's incumbent upon him to do it and not her. The six measures are an unusual number. But Naomi seemed to get it. She said, he's not going to rest until this is done. I would say that she had some help you don't know about. Would you like to see the help that you don't know about? Or would y'all rather quit here? Okay, well then let's put it on the screen. It turns out that the Jewish wedding proposal, the vows, are based on Exodus 6. While looking at Exodus 6 today, I went, I will bring you out from under the yoke, measure one. I will free you from being slaves, measure two. I will redeem you, measure three. I will take you as my own, measure four. I will be your God, measure five. I will bring you into the, ma- into the land, measure six. And he won't rest until he gives it to whom? You. you. And the you there is Naomi. See, he gave her six measures saying, I have understood. I'm going to take Ruth, but you are going to get the land and everything. Tell me there's not more going on in the story than you first thought. And we haven't gotten to chapter four. Chapter four is love's reward. Amen. Well, let's pray together. I'll leave that up. Y'all can take pictures.